if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 18, we're going to deal with verses 9 through 14 this morning. Before we read that, I want to share a story that, that caught my eye this last fall. I don't know if you remember a particular trial that took place in, in Texas. It got national attention concerning a, a woman named Amber Geiger. She was a policewoman in Dallas, I believe it was, suburban Dallas. One day, returned home from a, a long day at work, 13 half hour day at work, and found her door open and a man in her apartment. And believing that he was a burglar, she pulled a gun and after giving a few warnings, shot and killed the man. It was only after that she learned that she had entered the wrong apartment. The man's name was Botham Jean. He was a 28-year-old accountant from St. Lucia in the Caribbean and a Christian who had simply been in his apartment eating ice cream on the couch when this happened. She faces up to life in prison, and in this trial, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. I should add that Amber Geiger was a white woman and Botham Jean was a black man. So in addition to all the stuff that is going on in our culture lately between police and civilians, we now have a racial, potential racial issue as well that just feeds into all sorts of stereotypes. So you can imagine what a 10-year sentence looks like to certain parts of the population. It's an outrage. It's unjust. How long are we going to put up with the police acting this way? How long are we going to protect our police rather than allow them to face justice? How long is this division between white and black and different races going to exist in this country? And it was during the trial that it was revealed that she was less than a sterling cop, so it didn't help her case much at all. But what was noteworthy about this trial was, was Botham's younger brother, Brent, took the stand, want, asked the judge permission to address uh, Ms. Geiger, and he said this, I'm going to quote a section from what he said, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time how much you've taken from us. I think you know that but I hope you go to God with all the guilt and all the bad things you have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we are not supposed to do. If you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I don't think anyone can say it. I'm speaking for myself and not even for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. I'm not going to say that I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. The best would be for you to give your life to Christ. I think giving you life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad for you. Uh, the response to that was pretty remarkable. Um, I, I listened to a particular podcast, kind of a roundtable, discussing political and cultural things going on. And the range of, emo range of responses just within this group was really fascinating, from uh, the only appropriate response is praise Jesus, praise Jesus. Another referred to it as an act of divine mercy. Another said it's something that people who are not coming to from a standpoint of faith can understand. Something so profound and so demanding of us. The last person on this, on this round table acknowledges right front, I'm not a Christian. 
And yet I find this the most extraordinary advertisement for Christianity. You can realize what a force for good Christianity can be. So that speaks to something in us. The ability to forgive over something so senseless and so, so painful. What causes or what allows a person to be able to do that? If that was your son, if that was your brother, if that was your dad who had been taken like that, would you have the ability, the resources, the frame of mind to forgive like that? What enables us to do that? It reminded me of this parable that we're going to look at here in Luke 18. Um, so if you'd stand with me as we read this parable, I, I think this will provide some, some guidance on how to understand what took place there that day. Luke 18, 9 through 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For, whoever, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to receive your word, your good and faithful and eternal word. Lord, search our hearts with your word that we may learn from this we may be moved by this and that we, we would change as a result of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to set the scene a little bit, Jesus is in Jerusalem teaching, and as he's teaching, his attention is caught by certain members of the audience. They're behaving in a certain way. It's very, very obvious and plain to see that they trusted in themselves and their own righteousness and treated others with contempt. Uh, you can imagine what that might look like, but I think as, as Luke is telling this story, it would be easy for his readers to say, oh, okay, I know what kind of people those are. I think we do too, because we've read, we've read the Gospels, we've, we've learned to associate certain behavior with certain groups of people. And so it wouldn't be surprising that Jesus would, would tell a parable about, that included this Pharisee figure that seemed to lock in exactly on these people that were in the audience, these are people who had accomplished something, who thought highly of themselves. And so he tells this parable to say something to them. This, this, these two characters in this parable, familiar figures from Jewish life, two very different kind of men, I think even so different that probably sound like the beginning of a joke. A Pharisee and a tax collector walked into the temple. That doesn't happen. And we'll talk about that in a minute to help you, hopefully help you see why that is the case. And he's telling this this way to set them up because this is not going to go the way they expect. I want to I set up what I'm going to say next because I think this is really important. Because we've probably heard the Gospels enough and we know who the good guys are and the bad guys are in the biblical account, I think sometimes unfairly prejudices us 
towards certain people without understanding what they meant in their time. Or maybe even misunderstands their intentions. So the Pharisees are a bit like Puritans today. They're good or bad depending on who you talk to. Right? For some of you, hopefully all of you appreciate or at least respect the Puritans, but for a lot of people, Puritans are, I think uh, one person described them as the people with that vague feeling that someone somewhere was enjoying themselves. <laughs> but, but, they, but when you, when you look at the history of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, I think you'll find something different there. This is a school within Judaism. They held to a strict interpretation of the laws. So not just the Ten Commandments, but all the other laws that God gave out. And you've probably heard this. They had somewhere in the order of 600-some different commandments that they strove to keep. They did so. They held to a strict interpretation of the law with a heavy emphasis on holiness. This is also a populist group that identified more with the lower classes in contrast with Sadducees who tended to be more along the lines of the social elites. The important part to understand is that the Pharisees, along with the rest of the Jewish leadership, were widely revered and respected by the people. So think of people that you might respect today. John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, whoever, fill in the blank. They were, they were people of character and quality and devotedness and education that the people just respected and admired and aspired to. I want to back up really quick to, to get at something I didn't explain earlier. The reason why they held to a strict interpretation of the law was not because they set out to be legalists. They looked at the Jewish history and understood that within God's covenant with Israel, keeping the law was essential, right? You see that in scripture. And when Israel went off the tracks, when God removed his favor from his people, when he turned them over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and removed them from the land and essentially put them under a curse, it all connected to Israel's faithfulness or faithlessness to the law. So the natural and understandable response would be, if we are going to get back into God's favor, if we are going to prove ourselves to be the righteous remnant that the prophets talked about, then keeping the law becomes essential. Keeping the law also was an important part of Jewish identity. Uh, one of the stories that we don't hear very often, but in, there's a collection of books that, ex, that covers the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't find them in our Bible, and there's, there's a variety of reasons for it. But they do cover an important part of Israel's history, which includes the invasion of the Greeks. And what the Greeks wanted to do was basically add Israel, the Palestinian area, to their empire. And to do so, they wanted to remove all distinctiveness from the Israelite people. So no circumcision, no food laws, no Sabbath observance, certainly no temple. They wanted to take everything away and the Jews fought hand and foot against them with all their might because those were God's gifts to them as his covenant people. So when Jesus comes along and shows what in their view is a bit of an indifference to the Sabbath, or a little bit of an indifference to hanging out with sinners, non-law keepers. It wasn't because they were so uptight about keeping their precious little laws, but they saw larger ramifications. If we follow this person, he is leading us away from God. So, so there is a good purpose 
behind what a lot of them, maybe not all, were doing in their clashes with Jesus. I want to argue. Nevertheless, these were people who would be widely admired by the people. These were, these were sort of leaders and models and exemplars to the people in terms of what a person of God looks like. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were the exact opposite. They were often employees of the Roman Empire, so already, already traitors to the people. Romans were godless conquerors, reminders of Israel's, of God's opposition to them because of their faithlessness, certainly not one of them. They were the enemy. And they collected a variety of taxes, income tax, estate tax, poll tax, sales tax, tribute tax, etc. Taxes alone are enough to get under our skin, but when you see people making a profit off them, because the tax collectors were allowed to add to those payments in order to make their own living, and as a result, many of them became quite wealthy. That did not endear them to much of anybody. They were generally unpopular, treated as outcasts in the community. They were traitors, stooges, cheats. They were shut out from public office, and they were barred from serving as a witness in court. There was no room for them in Jewish society. And, and many would say justifiably so. Wouldn't you? Jesus tells a story about them going into the temple, and he, he makes a couple of contrasts. First, the contrast in behavior. The Pharisee stands to pray. It's a common posture of prayer, but there's more... There's more, I think, there in his actions. He was among the people, maybe even at the front of the people, because he was a leader. But to stand is to, to not be ashamed, to not be afraid, but to take his proper place. He belongs there. This is his place. This is his office. He knows what he's doing there. While the tax collector, on the other hand, stands far off. He's away from the other people. He prays with his head bowed while hitting himself in the chest. It's a strange action for us, but one that expresses a, a significant grief, significant despair. And there's a certain agony to his words. All together speak the exact opposite. This is not his home. Everybody else thinks it's weird that he's here. He thinks it's strange that he's here. He doesn't belong here. Then there's a the contrast in prayers. First, the Pharisee. Again, I think because of our, our prejudices, it's hard to hear this in the right way. It sounds awful, in fact. But try to hear this with sympathetic ears. First, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It just sounds, it just sounds awful. There's just no way to put it around. But, but that is something to be thankful for. Isn't that what we pray for our kids? We don't like, want you to be like other kids. We want you to follow Christ. We want you to be godly. We want you to be wise in the word. We want you to be close to God. We want you to be set apart in a certain way. We expect that and pray that, I hope, for ourselves as well and for our church, that we would be distinguished as a church, as a holy and righteous people. Amen? We would want that. We would not want to confess we are no different than the world around us. And in stating this prayer, note that he is thanking God for that fact. Thank you for steering me away from the unrighteousness that you see in others that do not know you. 
if we can't, if, if we can't pray that prayer, I think we need to think about where godliness comes from. God gives that. Second, he says, I have faithfully kept your commands. It's kind of a summary. I fast twice a week. According to the law, Jews were required to fast once a week. I tithe off everything I own, the gross, not just the net. In both these things, what he is praying is far beyond and above what is required. He is expressing his devotion to God. I, I think it's right. I'm not, I mean, trust me, I'm trying to be realistic with the Pharisees here, but I, I think we don't hear them or give them a fair hearing. I think this is a good and godly man according to the understanding of the Pharisees. Remember Paul, how Paul talked about himself? As far as righteousness, I exceeded every, I, I was, I exceeded every one of my peers. I worked harder at this. I strove at this. This is not an easy thing for them to do. This would be very costly for him to arrive at this point. I think we would see, if we were there, if we, if we had the understanding that look to these men the way that we look to the great people of our day, we would admire their dedication and devotion. We would be thankful that there were some who stood out as godly among us and not just rolling our eyes and saying, oh, brother, when's this guy going to be done? I think we're meant to be on the side of the Pharisee here, as Jesus tells this parable, in contrast to the tax collector, for sure. The tax collector, on the other hand, simply says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Everything in this picture really is as it should be. There's nothing wrong with this picture by itself. It's what Jesus says next that is so stunning. I think that the people expected Jesus to join them in affirming, praising the Pharisee for his faithful example and mocking the tax collector. Who does he think he is? He's just looking for cheap grace. He's just doing this to make him, to feel better about himself. And then he's going to go out and do the same thing again. You know how tax collectors are. They never change. At least we have this Pharisee to set the example and show us what's right. But that's not what Jesus does. Only the tax collector properly understood his state before God and was rewarded. And it's interesting, look at the wording there. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, I, I know because you're, you're taught by Sean that you have an understanding of what justification means. This is bigger than he just went home feeling better about himself. That the mercy he sought, Jesus said, was given to him and not to the Pharisee. Wait a minute. This is, Jesus is just opening up crazy world now because that's not how it's supposed to go. God blesses the Pharisees. God blesses the righteous. God blesses ones who keep the law, Right? This is, not, this, is not a, this is not a tax collector with a pure heart and a Pharisee with a black heart. By, by all appearances, the Pharisee's right and the tax collector's wrong, but Jesus says that's the one who gets justified, not the other? What on earth is going on there? Yes, he exalted himself, but, but the question is, what was the Pharisee missing here? I think, I think what Jesus is getting at is this. 
Pharisee didn't need God's grace or mercy because he had kept the law. I've done what you've required. I've been faithful. But in doing so, the Pharisee and the people who modeled their lives after him had misread the law. The Pharisees believed that by keeping the law, he'd be righteous. That means that righteousness is now a performance. How well do you do? I mean, isn't that how we measure ourselves? You know, when we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, how many of you beforehand are thinking, man, how did my week go? Uh, I don't know if I can go up there today and receive those things because I don't know if my heart's right before God. Look at my week. Look at my thoughts. Look at my words. Look at my actions. And we're measuring performance, aren't we? It's what we do. But what it also does is then, once we've evaluated ourselves, if we're not careful, we'll start to look around us, won't we? And measure ourselves against others. How am I doing versus Bob over here or Jill over there or that family? My kids seem to be handling themselves well in church, but theirs are a little bit all over the place. I haven't seen them for many weeks, and I've been here every Sunday. That's how I know. It's dangerous to turn that righteousness into a performance thing. But the law was meant to do two things. It was meant to tell us what God requires of us, but it was also meant to reveal our inability to do it. Not just as a matter of ability, but also as a matter of willingness. The law should be that brick wall that stops us from saying, I can do this. I can beat this. I beat other challenges. I can take on this. I can overcome this myself. I can deal with that lust. I can deal with that lying. I can deal with these things. I can improve myself, and then God will be happy with me. And we know we're not supposed to do that because that's salvation by works. But it is often how we think, isn't it? And the law is meant to break that in us, to bring us to repentance, which is not just saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's deeper than that. It's recognizing that we by ourselves are helpless to do what the law requires. I am helpless. You are helpless. We are all helpless before the law. We cannot do on our own what God requires, which should then turn us not away from God in frustration, but towards God in mercy. What hope did the tax collector have? showing up in the temple. The deck was already stacked against him. Why bother? Because he had nowhere else to go. He had reached the end. Putting all this together, I think one way to test whether we have properly understood the law is to consider how we view others. Those who understand the law realize they have no basis for looking down on anyone else. Not only that, but those who understand the law want others to know the same grace that they have received themselves. My, my dad used to have a, a saying describing evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. There's no superiority here. Doesn't matter how much education, doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter all the great things you've done in the name of Christ. Before the law, we are 
equally guilty, equally condemned in the same place. And that should break our heart before God and then train us to look towards others with compassion. Remember what Brent Jean said. His words are the words of someone who had known the grace of God. I could jump in and condemn you. You've hurt us deeply. You've taken something away that we will never have back, my brother. And yet I want the best for you. I know that God will forgive you because he's forgiven me. Do we know that kind of grace? So as we close, I mean, the obvious question is then what, where does that leave us? Who are we most like? We have ample opportunity to test it, don't we? In these times, these divisive times that we find ourselves in, yes, how we view each other politically matters in this case. How we view each other in terms of different beliefs on social values, social activity, sexual activity and the like matters in this case. Do we look down on others from any sort of lofty sight, even if it's just one step above? How, how can we know ourselves before God rightly and look down on anyone? Do we look down? Have we known that brokenness before God? Have we known that grace? And that's, that's the other part to consider. For those who have been broken, if you are brought to the end by the law, you look at this and I don't do, I can't do any of this. I don't want to, it's too hard. Every day is a new battle. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to be righteous before God. God have mercy on me. When you reach that point, how sweet the grace that God gives. Amen? How wonderful that is. Amazing grace, how can it be that thou, my Lord, would die for me? But it requires us to leave off all our attempts to be righteous before him and plead our weakness and our need before him and ask him for mercy, and he gives it. Amen? So let the law do its proper work. If there is any self-righteous in you, turn to the Lord. Seek his face and ask him to teach you the law. But when you come to the law and you realize what it reveals about you, and all you can say is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Know that God answers that prayer. He delights to show mercy. He does not hold back. He overflows with that, not just so that we would feel good about things going forward, but one, that we'd be transformed, and two, that part of that transformation is that we would desire others, even our enemies, political, social, what have you. We would desire that our enemies would also know that same grace. That's the transformation that God desires in us. Let's pray. Lord, may we be honest before you as we wrestle with these questions, as we look at this passage and see where our heart really lies. 
Lord, it's so easy because it's so much around us of trying to prove ourselves to you, to prove ourselves worthy, to prove ourselves righteous, to prove ourselves deserving. But that's not the way of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd also give us courage to face ourselves in the mirror of your law and come to the conclusion that it points toward. None of us here are worthy. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. All of us are helpless, dead in our sins. We need you in your great mercy and love to make us alive in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.